God, we love you. We, uh, we ask you to speak. We know that, that nothing can happen apart from a work of your spirit. We know that there's nothing I can say or uh, ears that are, that are so attentive enough that could possibly reveal the divine. Uh, we're thankful that you do that. We'd ask you to show up as we always do. When we gather and we assemble, we um, hear your word brought before us. We pray that the, the beauty that is found in Jesus would uh, continue to grow in our hearts as a result of being together this morning. It's for your great name we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go to uh, Luke chapter 1. You're going to be really proud of me because we're going to actually finish chapter 1 this morning. So everybody who's away on Memorial Day, I'm not going to post it online just so they can not enjoy the, the gift that we had. No, I'll actually post it online. So I was like, no, don't do that. So uh, we're actually going to get through chapter 1. We're going to go uh, up to verse 80 today. We're going to see a, a beautiful promise that is prophesied through the lips of Zechariah in these uh, 15 uh, verses. We're going to look a little bit on the front end from 57 on, but we're going to focus most of our time on this um, prophetic song of praise by Zechariah as he says some pretty profound things that are going to be really important for us to know as a church, as a people, um, and really he was saying so that the whole world might know some pretty awesome profound things. So um, if you're just jumping into this, if this is uh, your first time or you've missed a couple weeks and you have been following along, just, just so you know ahead of time, uh, this is going to be a book that we're going to be in probably for a, a good season of time. I don't know how long, but this gospel is pretty long, but it's really rich. And we wanted to just stare at the person work of Jesus, to look at his life, to look at his teachings, to look at what he does so that we could be further changed and shaped more in the image of who he is. And the gospels are what better place to look at and stare at to actually learn about those things. I said a couple weeks ago that, that the Gospels are really like the fountainhead of all of Scripture, that if you fan out to the Old Testament, back to Genesis 1 from the Gospels, or go all the way to the end of Revelation, you'll see that this is kind of the signpost for everything else, okay? So all the rest you're going to read, you're going to see shadows and signs of all that you see in these Gospels. So these are really, really important to know. And we've learned that this was written by a guy named Luke. He was a physician. He was a doctor. He was a beloved fellow co-laborer with the Apostle Paul. He actually is one of the only guys that didn't desert him and stay with him to the end. And he is writing to a Roman official named Theophilus because he wants this guy who seems maybe a bit skeptical about Christianity. We're not quite sure where he lands on the, the forum, what his real beliefs are, whether he is or atheist or pantheist or uh, just indifferent to all those things. We know that he writes this so that you can be certain of the life and teachings of Jesus. And not just certain of the life and teachings of Jesus, but know them and grow in them and be transformed by them. Okay, so it's not enough just to know facts. Like Luke's goal is not so that you can just spit off some facts about Jesus and his life. He wants you to be changed by it. He wants there to be actual transformation in your heart in light of seeing the Son of God and beholding what he did in the person and work of his crucified and risen self. And so we're going to uh, continue to see this amazing kind of thing unravel where God has seen the darkness, seen the unrest, seen the fracture, and he's going to send a deliverer to invade that space and rescue and redeem those who repent from sin, who he calls to himself. And it's going to be an amazing thing to see throughout this. Now, understand we saw that in the Old Testament there were many people that talked about this, that foreshadowed this, that prophesied about this, that there will be one to come. So Israel's waiting, they're waiting for the promised one, they're waiting for the Redeemer, they're waiting for the Deliverer. They know this is coming, and so this morning it's going to be huge because we've been anticipating two significant births, right? They're going to kind of trigger this. Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were barren, who were shamed by culture, who couldn't have children, God promises them a son when Zechariah enters the temple. He kind of doubts God, doesn't believe God. God shuts his mouth in gracious discipline so that it will result in glorious praise, which we're going to see today. 
they're going to have this son, John, who's going to be the trigger for the Savior, for this Messiah that was promised by Mary. Okay, and so where we're going to see this morning, where we're going to land is God breaking his silence, not just verbally like he did through the angel, but actively and actually starting this whole process of redemption through the birth of who will be John the Baptist. Um, So we're going to start in verse 57. As we've been waiting for these two births, we've finally arrived with the first one. And here is what Luke is going to write about these events. Now when the time for Elizabeth now, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but the mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring that he wanted what he wanted him to be called And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John, and they all wondered. Okay, before we dig into this, I want to say one thing that's kind of a tangent, but not a tangent, okay? Um, One of the best things that I was taught um, when I first started seminary was this, and that's that as you read your Bible, and this is maybe something good to just, just to jot down or, or take a note of, no matter what text you're in, no matter what book you're in, no matter what thing you read, look for what God is trying to reveal about himself. Okay, because here's what we've all got to get. This book is not about you and me. Okay, it includes humanity, it includes acts and things that happen, but this book is primarily about God and what he is doing. He is the hero, he is the playwright, he is the writer, he is the orchestrator. So he wants you to see everything in this book to reveal more about his character, more about his glory, more about his person and work, more about what he has done so that that results in greater worship of your soul and greater enjoyment of his name. And as we do this, as we walk through this, we got to be careful because so often we want to put ourselves in and make ourselves kind of the big deal, but there's nothing intrinsically great about us, okay? Actually, the Bible say the opposite. Everything about us is awful, stained, sinful, wicked, idolatrous, wandering, rebellious. Everything about God is perfect. Everything about God is good. Everything about God is glorious. So he wants you to see him, okay? So no matter you read about births or funerals or weddings or events or Zachariah and Elizabeth or family occasions and people, you know, having these amazing trials, look at what God is trying to reveal about himself. That's what you want to see. That's what you want to look for. Because ultimately, that's what God wants for our hearts. He wants you to marvel more at who he is. He wants you to get your eyes off of you. He doesn't want you to gaze deeper at you. He wants you to get off of him to see all that he's done and all that he is and all that he has has done. And so here as we look at this with this old priest, young virgin, family occasions, births, we could insert probably a lot of different things in here, get a lot of different cool application points, but what God wants you to see is that he's faithful, that he's he's utterly merciful to sinners, that he keeps his covenants, that he longs to bring glory to himself through rescue and and redeeming sinful man and sinful woman. And so as we see all of these things, let's continue to keep that in our minds. As you continue to read Luke, some of you guys read ahead, some of you guys go along with where we're studying, consider those questions. As you're studying and reading. Okay, so, so here, here's what we see right here. Elizabeth, okay, is finally about to give 
birth. Now, this has been longly awaited. There's been, you know, time. Remember, Zachariah right now, he's been trapped in his mind. His mouth has been shut. He can't say anything. He also can't hear. We also learn that here because people start making signs to him. You don't make signs to someone who can actually hear, okay, or, and, uh, and can't talk. So he's got both of those things. So he has to start writing on tablets. He also can't understand what people are saying, so they're signing to him. And uh, as they're doing all of these things, there's this massive celebration. There's lots of family and friends. Understand, Jewish custom with births, it, everybody came, okay, even your second, second, second cousin, okay, everybody was there, it was joy-filled, it was massive, they would even hire local musicians, it was a fanfare event. Now, I know some of you guys, maybe culturally, that's still what you do, so you're in the hospital room and people can't even enter the room because everyone's there to see the birthing of that baby. Uh, I've only got like six people in my extended, extended family, uh, my wife has about 5,000, so it was all of her family packed in there, wanting to see the kid, wanting to enjoy it, I've got my, you know, one aunt, one uncle, I look homeless, so we had all that attention from my wife's parents as we're doing all this, but, but that's what Jewish births were like, according to custom, so you can picture just a massive amount of people, lots of family, there's joy, there's celebration, the baby has finally come, and Luke says, now the time came. Okay, there's weight to that. Okay, that, that, he's saying this is triggering the announcement. The time came. It's here, right? All the angst for centuries of wanting a Messiah to deliver us from the darkness, deliver us from enemies, deliver us from oppression, deliver us from the sin that enslaves us, deliver us from the unrest. Hey, the time has come. The forerunner's here. He's going to inaugurate and tell about the one who will come, who will be the Savior, who will ultimately redeem human history. And one of the first things they would do is circumcise the child. Now, they would do this on the eighth day according to custom, and they would actually have about eight to ten witnesses. For, they would only let the father do it, okay, just for um, uh, purity and for not, you know, having to watch that. And they would have eight to ten people just kind of acknowledge it, okay, it was done. And uh, they would circumcise the child. And, and, and understand, just briefly on circumcision, God instituted this not as an act to save you, but rather a mark to mark you as his, Okay, so this was a national identification to be of the people of God. This was like you putting on a team jersey, okay, and identifying with a team. Okay, so it was, it was never something to be salvific in nature. It was something to mark you. So people would say, I identify with the people of God. I believe in the promises of God. I believe in the goodness of God. But we know that doesn't remove sin. Okay, that, doesn't, that doesn't redeem you or rescue you from your fallen state, but it identified you as the people of God. And so Jewish people would identify their Jewish sons and daughters as being in Israel, as being part of the people of God. That's what we're seeing here. So this is all tradition. This is all part of it. This is why in the New Testament, what does Paul say? You're now marked by the Holy Spirit, right? You have a circumcision of the heart. It's a marking. It's to mark that you're his, that's where we see the evidences of it in the New Testament. And so the first thing they would do was circumcise the child after this celebration. And then after that was the naming of the child. And that's what you're seeing happening here. Okay, so there's this whole group of people sitting there all debating on who they should name the child. Now, naturally, a lot of them are saying, man, well, we should just name him after his dad. How about Zachariah? Right? I mean, he's a priest, he, he's doing some cool work. Hey, he got the, the straw to go down to the temple and do that amazing thing where he went in to light incense. Even though we got muted, some bad things, weird things happened in there, why don't we still kind of honor him and name him Zechariah? And this isn't uncommon. Actually, groups of people and family often helped in naming of the, of the child. You look back in Ruth, Boaz and Naomi, there was a group of people surrounding and they helped name their child. So this is not uncommon, this is not crazy, this is actually part of it. I think today, you know, we get in a little bit of debate, Right? 
Your family walks in, tells you, hey, you should name your child this, and then, oh, tempers flare. Everybody has a different opinion. So, so here is that's all happening. There's this big group of people. They're all going, hey, why don't you name him John? Elizabeth perks up, and she's pretty insistent. Like, when she says there, no, he's going to be named John, this is like, no, I don't think so. I think he should be John. That, that word is emphatic. Like, absolutely not. Like, he's going to be named John. He's not going to be named Zacharias. So you can imagine people are wondering, did you and your husband have, like, a marital issue? Are you, are you really upset at Zachariah? You don't want your own son being named after him? Like, what's going on here? There are things that we need to figure out. There's probably some confusion here. There's probably some uncertainty here. And she speaks up, and she says that, no, his name is to be John. Now, why is she insistent about it? Well, I think, number one, Gabriel came when Gabriel said to Zechariah, God revealed to them, hey, you're going to name this child John. Why? Because John's name means God is gracious. Why does that matter? Because John and Jesus, who are going to be born into this world, fundamentally are in God's purpose of showing that God's going to be gracious to sinners. So yeah, his name's going to be John, because that's going to mark him that Jesus is going to be Jesus, because he's going to actually save him. Jesus means one who saves and so, so John the forerunner and the Messiah are being given these names for paramount importance of God's purposes. God's revealing even through the divine naming of this child that he is a gracious God. That he wants to save sinners. That he wants to redeem humanity. And so all this is happening and there's all this confusion and, and they're all wondering where you came up with this name John. And, and I love it. Zachariah enters the picture. Good husband. He wants to lead the home even though he's mute and deaf. Right, so he is, he is trying to enter this space. You can almost see him frustrated, getting panicked. Like he's like, I know my mouth isn't going to open until all this is fulfilled. So can you give me a tablet? Like, name him John. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want God to kill me. I don't want God to smite me. Like, let's get this thing rolling. I want to talk. His name's going to be John. End of story. So he asks for a tablet, grabs it. You can picture him almost frantically scrambling on this tablet. His name is John. Listen to my wife. Right, being a good husband. As everybody's given their opinions and given their names, he's probably Italian, even though he's Jewish, right? He just, he just does it. I mean, he just gets involved and says this thing, and he has them say his name will be John, verse 64, and immediately, I love it, God's faithful. What did he say? When this is fulfilled, you'll be able to talk again. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Okay, so after years of Zechariah begging for a son, wanting a legacy, God comes and visits him in a temple, gives him a promise. He doubts the promise. God graciously humbles him, graciously disciplines him. He goes for nine months without speaking, without hearing. And here all of a sudden the fulfillment of what God promises happened and he can talk. So naturally everyone's filled with a bit of fear. Okay, so they're, they're witnessing a threat of the miraculous, okay? A miraculous birth of an elderly, barren wife, okay? You also have the miraculous, divine naming of a child because God is gracious. You have the miraculous work of, of these births even happening and then the birth actually happening and not only being given. And then you have the instantaneous healing of a deaf, mute man who all of a sudden can talk. So people are going, what is going on? There's, there's awe, there's fear. Look, anytime the power of God is at work, there's a bit of awe, there's a bit of fear, there's a bit of confusion because the divine is at play. 
That's what they're, that's what they're seeing. Man, there, there's something not totally human about this. Like there, there's a divine being at work here orchestrating these things and causing these things to happen. And so they're all marveling at it. There's fear came, coming over all the neighbors. And don't miss what Zechariah does. I love this. Right when his mouth was open, what happens? He worships. I think that is so important to see. The first thing he does when God finishes his gracious discipline of his heart is he worships. Why is this huge? If you're in Christ, God does not discipline you to punish you. Like he does not rescue anyone to destroy them. He rescues you and then disciplines you so that it will lead you into deeper life and greater worship of his name. And you're going to see that as he rolls into this song. So just a, a quick question. I mean, if you're in a season of discipline, you're in a season of darkness, you're in a season of God, what are, what are you doing here? Trust me. He's doing it not to beat you over the head, not to condemn you, not to make you feel guilty. He wants it to result in greater worship of his name. So take hope in that, that he is lovingly disciplining you. That he's graciously walking you through something that might seem like it's got no outlet, no light at the end of the tunnel. Man, hang on because it's going to result in greater praise. I shared this, how every single time without fail God has done this in my life, it has never not led me to greater praise of his name. It hasn't. It hasn't led me to a place where I haven't marveled more at his grace, more at his mercy, more at his kindness, more at his forgiveness. So know that if you're in that place, be encouraged. Zachariah was there for nine months. What is God doing? He's muted my mouth. He's deaf in my ears. And the second God delivers him from that gracious discipline, what does he do? He, he blesses God. He praises his name. He worships him because he understands all that God was doing. He can see it with eyes that are clear. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so these events, they travel, travel faster than priority mail. They go all over the town. I mean, everyone's talking about this. Man, did you, you remember that pre-Zechariah? Remember he went into that, that temple and he got the, the winning straw? Remember he came out mute? Remember how crazy that was? He said something like an angel said that him and his wife who were barren for years, they're actually going to have a son. You hear about that? Hey, man, I was actually at the birth. Did you know that he can talk now? Did you, there's something divine happened. Did you know that, that everyone was kind of arguing and, you know, he didn't even want him to be named after his own name, his own son. He told them that he should be named John. You know, apparently John's name means gracious. Apparently that he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. To, remember reading Isaiah 40 and Malachi 4 in your living room? Remember how they talked about this forerunner that would come and, and be the one who would come before the Messiah? You understand this? Like, all those things are being talked about. Like, do, do you think maybe he's here? Do you think maybe this means that, that the rescuing, redeeming Messiah is actually coming? Do you think this is it? So all of this is just spreading throughout the city of Judea. This is the hot topic. This is in the headline news of the Judean Times. Okay, you want to pick up your newspaper, this is what you're going to read about. Mute deaf man can talk. Wow, amazing birth, miraculous birth, divine baby naming. I mean, the Messiah might be here. Incredible. Incredible. And it just spreads like rapid fire. And remember... Remembers, we're going to look at now what, what Zechariah has to say, divinely inspired by God. As we look at what Zechariah has to say here, remember that he's been locked up for nine months and can't say anything. This is like a, a Hoover Dam that has been pent up and you give it room and then it just bursts 
with worship. It bursts with praise. It declares who God is, declares who, why he's faithful, why he's good, why he's merciful. It's been pent up in him as he's been learning this and discovering this and now I think really seeing it for the first time through the birth of his own son. All these promises. And what he says is deeply profound. Look at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Okay, what I want to do is listen, I'm not going to get in Every last detail of this, because we still got a few verses left to do. I want to kind of scale back and give you a hierarchy kind of picture to kind of grab your hand on to kind of get the, the general scope of what he's doing. Okay? He's going to basically walk us through three main covenants. The one to Abraham, the one to David, and then the new covenant promise, which we're going to see in the, in the, in the following text. Okay? And he's going to actually show how all of these, this is basically a song from Zechariah connecting the birth of his son to the birth of the Savior to the salvation of people. Okay, that's kind of the thread you're going to see. He's connecting the dots. You're actually seeing Zechariah almost in his mind going, wait, I'm getting it. I'm seeing these promises fulfilled. I'm seeing what's happening. I'm, I'm seeing what my baby really is. And picture, he's holding his son. He's looking down at his kid going, I can't believe you are part of the fulfillment of all of this. I can't believe my son is this forerunner to the Messiah. So, so we're going to see this. So here, here are the, I told you the three basic covenants that, that he mentions. And he's, he's looking through it all through this lens. The Abraham, Davidic, and then the new covenant. So basically the one to David. This is very simply what it was. It was, hey, from King David would come another king and through his line would be a king whose, whose, whose kingdom would never end, who would deliver them from enemies, who would protect them. Okay, this was the promise he made to David, in a sense. I think 2 Samuel 7, you can see a lot of that finished in chapter 23. Okay, that's a lot of where that happens. The one to Abraham was, and, and Abraham was way before David. Abraham was, hey, through your offspring is going to be a, a nation. And through your nation, there's going to be blessing, there's going to be land, and there's going to be a redeemer from that nation that's going to come to ultimately redeem and make right what all went wrong in the fall. Okay, so these, these are the, the, the two things that he's first seeing out here, that he's naming, that he's, that he's talking about. And so Zechariah's bridging this gap of this covenant God made to his people that is being fulfilled, and he starts out just praising God. Blessed be the Lord. Why? Because he's been silent for 400 years. There's been no word from God. There's been no voice from God. There's been no message from God. I mean, is he faithful? Is he going to do what he said? Is this deliverer really coming? And so he's going, man, wow, the time is coming. This redeemer and rescuer is actually being enacted. This plan of redemption in its fullness is happening, and my son is playing a role in that. So blessed be God, right? How good is God that he would use me, use my family to accomplish and be a part of this divine role of redemption? Amazing. Amazing. I mean, if you're a parent, you can maybe get just a little of the joy he's feeling, 
right? A little of the excitement, a little bit of the awe that he's feeling that his son would play a role in redemptive history. And he's saying all of this. And not just redeem us from earthly enemies, but, but from the spiritual enemy of sin, the spiritual enemy of, of darkness that enslaves us, of, of the adversaries of this world, Satan, who would come and want to condemn, kill, and destroy. He knows that this Redeemer is coming to break through all of the things that hold our souls captive. Now the question is, how's God going to do this? That's what, he, I mean, that's what Zachariah's thinking. I mean, because he knows he's going all the way back, right? I mean, how can God deliver enslaved people to their sin? I mean, he knows his Old Testament really well. I mean, he's seen the ups and downs of Israel. He sees their idolatry, even saw after captivity, not really idolatrous, but still not believing the truthfulness of God and his commands. We're going to get into the Mosaic Law in a minute. He saw that the law only exposes sin. It doesn't help break sin. Like, like he, he's seen the sacrifices over and over, and he's thinking about Hebrews. It hasn't even been written yet. And Hebrews saying, hey, all those sacrifices, yeah, that was just a shadow of the things to come, the perfect lamb that will come, because all those things were just to make a point that one will come to permanently deal with sin. But you know, it has to be atoned for somehow, and it can't be against your good deeds and your good works, you attending church or going to the temple or saying all your prayers. So he, he's, he's just thinking through all of these things. How will God do this? How will he redeem sinful, broken people? Verse sixty. Nine In here he says, speaking presently and in the future tense, based upon what's happening, he has redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation. The horn was just a symbol of power. Okay, you know like in the animal kingdom, animals that have horns, they're like the kings. Rule the animal kingdom. He knows and the Jewish mind knows a horn of salvation means an all-powerful conquering savior. And he's seen it. He's raising him up. Primarily in who? Jesus, who's going to be their all-powerful, conquering Savior. He's going to be the horn of salvation. God's raising him up. My baby's enacting this. So as he's looking down at his child, he knows that, man, John is going to point to this all-powerful, conquering Redeemer. Man, my son's going to do this. My son is a part of this. This is all that's probably going through his head. So he knows the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham and David, and even the personal promises in the new covenant are going to have to come through this ultimate redeemer. And he explains the profound reality of what's called the new covenant, I think, right here. As he looks down at his baby boy, look what he says in verse 74. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to what? This is huge. To give knowledge of salvation. Wait, people are going to know there's, there's a way for permanent rescuing from sin? We don't have to do sacrifice after sacrifice anymore? We're, we're going to understand that, that there's going to be a knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Permanent forgiveness. Why? Because of what? What do we see about God? Tender mercy. Because of his tender mercy of our God, 
where the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Remember, Malachi 4 saying, hey, the sun will rise with healing in its beams. S-U-N, figuratively, the S-U-N sun is coming. Zechariah's announcing it, prophesying about it, saying, hey, the time's here. Redemption's coming. It's being enacted. We'll rise and give light to those who sit in darkness. Why do you think Jesus was called the son of light, the light of the world, right? See all this language? This sun, it will give light to those who sit in what? The shadow of death, who sit in darkness to guide feet to the ways of peace. Those who sit in ignorance, those who don't see their sin, those who don't see God as good. He's going to be the light that shows them and reveals how sinful we are, how holy he is, and how much you need him. Man, this, this light is going to break through the darkness. This is a, I mean, the whole Bible's profound. But I mean, this is like a rudder in your Bible. I mean, this is like a door hinge. I mean, you're seeing all of these things come to pass, this transition into the new covenant promise that Jesus later will say, hey, it's going to be ratified in my death, in my resurrection. Luke 22, the blood that you drank, it's the blood of the new covenant. All the promises fulfilled in me. I'm the one who ratifies it. I'm the one who makes it whole. I'm the one who stamps it and seals it. So Zechariah is filled with inexpressible joy beyond comprehension. Now here's what is, I think, huge to understand. There is, I believe there is another covenant in the back of his mind that was not salvation in essence. There were a lot of covenants God made in the Old Testament that weren't all salvific in nature. Okay? You got the one he made to Noah, right? What was his promise? I won't flood the world again. I won't flood the earth again. That's not necessarily salvific in essence. Okay? There are some covenants he makes that are explicitly that. Abrahamic and Davidic. Okay? From your line, this Redeemer's going to come. Sin, forgiveness, mercy, covering, atonement. But in the back of his mind, he knows, because he knows the Old Testament, he knows that God came and made a covenant with Moses. What happened was, this guy Moses, who was leading God's people at the time, he went up to a mountain called Mount Sinai, and God gave them, the people of Israel, the law, which is, in a sense, God's truest statement about what is good. Okay? It's all that's good, it's right. It's, it's his demand. And here's what happens. Fulfilled in the Ten Commandments, primarily summarized in Jesus' statement, love the Lord your God with the whole soul and mind and strength, love your neighbors yourself. Okay, so, so you have that given. But here's the thing. People were thinking, okay, hold on a second. Does the law help fulfill? If I obey the law, will that fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham and to David? And Zechariah knows, okay, that law is not going to fulfill that promise because he knows that there is no way to keep the law to atone for sin. He knows that the law only exposes your sin, only excites your sin, according to Romans 3. So he knows, okay, righteous works, good deeds, just trying to love him enough and muster up all these good things, even though it's good, God's good law. He gave that for us not to free us, but to show us how enslaved we are so that when the deliverer might come, the Messiah, he'd free us from that and fulfill it perfectly for us. That when Jesus comes, he actually lives that out. All of God's demands, he lives it out perfectly on our behalf for us so that now all these promises that God made can be perfectly fulfilled in this Redeemer. 
And that's why Zechariah mentions in this song Abraham and David, but in the back of his mind, he's understanding and knowing that's why. That's why. I've seen what the law does. I'm aware of my own imperfection. I'm aware that I can't possibly obey God's truest statement of all that is good. And so Zechariah is here going knowing, I know there's no way the promises to Abraham and David are going to be fulfilled in that law. Someone else has to do it for me. And now there's going to be knowledge of that salvation and forgiveness of sin when we break the bar every day, when we miss the mark every day, when we stumble and fall and look goofy and wander and he graciously brings us back, not because of what you're doing, but because of what he did for you and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is why, this is what's so incredible. This is why he says, look, we might serve him, God, what? Without fear in holiness and righteousness. What's he saying? We're going to be able to serve God without fear of his wrath or fear of his curse. Why? Because he's going to take it on himself. We can actually now serve God in holiness and righteousness. Why? Because we're going to be made his. I mean, the righteousness God's going to see is not my own. It's not me upholding the law. It's going to be the one who did it for me and stands in front of me and gives me his righteousness. This is Amazing what Zechariah is putting together in the God-inspired words of this Bible. This is why, I'm, I'm telling you, when I read the Bible, people say, well, how do you really know it's divinely inspired? I mean, this guy's not that smart. I mean, he can't put all this together. He can't see all of this. I mean, the guy was just mute for nine months. He was just doubting God's faithfulness and his covenants and his promise in the temple. And here he's, he's overwhelmed with wonders. God's revealing to him the plan of redemption, the plan of salvation. And it's amazing that he's going, man, we're going to be able to serve God in holiness and righteousness. It's not because of the threat of law. Because of what God graciously does for us. Namely in Christ. There's going to be permanent salvation. It's not going to be because of our deeds. It's not going to be because of our works. So Zechariah speaks to this new covenant. And he says to, if you sit here with me this morning as an accused, sinful frail, keenly aware of your shortcomings, brother and sister. Look at what he says to accused, rightfully condemned sinners. He speaks to this new covenant and the person work of Jesus, verse 77. He gives knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God. The sunrise shall visit us and give light to those who sit in darkness and shadow of death and guide their feet to the way of peace. This is the great new covenant promise. And what is it? Mercy is here. Mercy's here, guys. Forgiveness is here. I mean, it's, it's, it's now coming out, us post side of the cross. Again, Luke 22 again. Do you understand the weight of what Jesus said when he said this new covenant is ratified in what I'm about to do? I mean, I mean, do you do you see that? Do you, I mean, this is beautiful and profound. This is good news. And Jesus is saying it's me. It's all about me. And Zechariah is pointing to that. This is what Zechariah understood as his greatest hope. In his mind, knowing the Old Testament, he knew that he couldn't look to his good works for God to save him. 
He had to look to someone else. And he knows, he knows why God would do this for the sinner. He knows why he'd do it. Because in his character, in the way that God is, he's merciful. He has tender mercy. Zechariah understands there has to be mercy. There has to be. That's what he's saying. According to the tender mercy of God, there has to be mercy for sinful, broken people who haven't gotten it right throughout the history of God's people, who have constantly fallen short, who have constantly wandered into other idols, who have constantly fallen into sin. He knows that it has to happen through a new covenant promise. That's why he jumps there. That's how he's making the, the connection here for us, not because he did anything, because of the tender mercy of God. He knows that no sinner's gonna pull it off. He knows it. He knows no one's gonna all of a sudden wake up one morning going, hey, I've intrinsically got the righteousness and ability to overcome all of my sin, to honor God and love him and worship him and I let no idols in my life, let no slip-ups, no stumblings. He knows it's impossible outside of God's gracious, tender mercy. And I love this. This is not God conceding. Please know that. This isn't God conceding. This is God giving it freely. This is God in joy saying, I love giving mercy to sinners. This is not him conceding. Okay, you know what? Oh, that's the deal? That's right. You kind of need this. I'll begrudgingly hand it over. No. That's not God. It's not the God of the Bible. He doesn't concede. He gives freely. So in this little village... As Zachariah is holding his baby boy, he sees down the tunnel of salvation history from the Old Testament into the New that God will ultimately redeem his people. And even though his people ultimately reject him and have the Romans kill him, which he doesn't know yet, God will still redeem, God will still save to those who repent and turn to him. God still has some work with his people Israel. I'm not going to get into that. But he also unveils it to an eternal lasting kingdom that extends the globe. That was the promise to David. That Gentiles are going to be included in this new covenant. That we're going to enjoy salvation. We're going to enjoy worship. That, that sinful, broken people, Jew and Gentile, find rescuing and permanent salvation in the blood of Jesus alone. And that's what we run to and that's what we cling to. That's what, what he's seeing as he holds his child. You, you know, I was thinking about this passage. You know in Exodus 33, do you remember when Moses is with God and he's like, man, God, I just, I just want to see like a glimpse of your glory. Like I, now, can you imagine asking God that? Like seriously, you're looking at the God of the universe and you're going you're gonna to tell him, hey, can you, can you show me some of your glory? You know what I'm saying? Like that takes a lot of guts. What does God say? In essence, hold on, hold on. Let my mercy pass before you. Hold on. You can't handle my glory. You would die if you laid eyes on me for a millisecond. So what's required? Mercy. Hold on. Let my mercy pass before you, and I'll show you an ounce. It's always been this way. Mercy has always been required for sinners, imperfect, finite humans, in light of a massively holy, glorious king. 
The only reason we can actually have fellowship with him is because he's shown us mercy in the person and work of Jesus. I mean, if we could just sit there for a long time knowing that I don't even deserve intercession, I don't even deserve access, I mean, the fact that he even listens to my prayers and responds and answers is because of the mercy he's shown. And he sees all of this. Now, now here's the irony, guys, of all this is Zechariah has a notebook filled with plans. Filled. You probably have them too. I have them too. What did he want his whole life? He wanted a legacy. He wanted children. He wanted grandchildren. He had a whole idea of what he wanted in his life, what he wanted to do, how he wanted to act. None of that happens, does it? And then God comes in in grace and gives him a promise. And then he kind of isn't sure about it. He wants more evidence. He doubts God's promise, doubts God's goodness. God shuts his mouth, disciplines him, and uses his gracious discipline to humble him to a place where then he can worship God in fullness again. And here's, this is what's ironic, is that God does not expose you to run from him, but to run to him. Like He wants you to press deeper into him when he exposes you, and you marvel at his mercy, and you marvel at his grace. That's the whole point of the good news of Jesus is he cares us enough not to leave us in our sin, not to be blinded to it, not to be ignorant of it, not to be unaware of it. He actually wakes us from our dead stupor, says, I'm going to show you how damning it is. I'm going to show you the remedy for it, and I'm going to love you eternally with it. What in the world? Blessed be God, right? We'd say the same thing. When our mouths are open, we would just say, praise God. Blessed be God that he's faithful to his promise, that he offers permanent salvation, that he raised up a horn of salvation, that he's faithful to what he told Abraham and David, that he has a new covenant promise where it is only the blood of Jesus Christ and the body broken of Jesus Christ that offers any forgiveness and reconciliation with a holy God. Now to end, this is, this is why this is all so, so important. To link back to what I said at the beginning about the Bible being all about him and for him and what he's done. Because this is what we believe here, is we believe that God does everything, orchestrates everything, initiates everything, so that the deepest joy we can have can be seen in looking at God's work, looking at God's glory, looking at his infinite perfections, so that he might be worshipped more. Because the primary goal of God's heart is to be worshipped Just read this book from front cover to the end. His primary concern is the great exaltation of his great name. He deserves it. He demands it. And in our worship of him, when we are full of that, we find our greatest joy. We find our greatest freedom. We find our greatest life. So so here's why this is important. God did not make you and me because he was lonely. Like he didn't need fellowship. You realize he was fully sufficient in himself? So listen, that's a nice idea, but you won't read one text that says God was lonely so he made finite humans to give him company. You won't find it. 
However, you will see that God's jealous for his glory, for his praise, for his worship. So in his generousness, he lets finite, frail, small, tiny human beings enjoy him, have fellowship with him, so that as he gets worship, you get joy. And it all goes in a full circle. And so that's why as we look at this, we don't judge him, tell him what to do or how he should respond. We look at this and go, okay, God, what are you doing? What do we see here? God has created everything so that my deepest joy is bound up in who you are. So what are we seeing here? What do you want to know? That he's faithful. That you're not. And that he is. That you break promises. That you betray people. That he doesn't betray his own. That he keeps his own. He keeps his covenant. That God shows mercy. We don't always show mercy. We love to make sure our ways verbalize and we right? But God just shows mercy, not conceding mercy, just gives it freely. That, that, that God is a forgiver of sin. We don't deserve it. When we don't forgive people for the sin, He forgives generously. See, He wants, he wants you to see Him. He wants you to read Luke and see Him, see what He accomplished through the work of His Son. That God keeps extending hope. I don't know what the dark spaces are that you're living in right now, but I know he doesn't want you to dwell on your dark spaces. <laughs> he doesn't want you to sit in your anxiety or your depression or, and just, just wallow in it, keep looking at it, expecting miraculously some change to happen for you to find something. He wants you to look up. He wants you to see him. I mean, I, I remember... In college, this was one of the things just reading through my Bible that was profound for me was, hold on a second, I've spent most of my life trying to fix me, even though I know Jesus Christ is the only answer that fixes me, and I've just been staring at me for hours upon hours upon hours. And I don't, I've never looked to him. I've never been reminded of who he is as the great redeemer, healer, and restorer. So let's ask God to remind us this morning of his great promises here in, in Luke 1. God, thank you that you're a, a covenant keeper. Thank you that you keep your promises. Thank you that you're faithful. Thank you that you have tender mercy. Thank you that you've made a way for us to have fellowship with you, not because you need it, but just because you wanted to blow our minds and give us deeper joy. That you knew through the enjoyment of you, you would receive greater praise. That through creating all things and us finding our greatest sense of worth and value in you, it would cause greater worship of your name and greater joy for our souls. God, thank you that we don't complete you. Thank you that we don't add to you. Oh, you'd be a horrible God if that were true. You'd be an insufficient God if that were true. Father, I pray for those this morning that find themselves in dark places. The God, the hope of Christ, the horn of salvation, the promised one who did come, perfectly upheld the law for them, who died a death for them, who rose again victorious, validating and ratifying all that he promised, that through his broken body and his shed blood alone, we can be forgiven of sin, shown tender mercy, reconciled with God, given the mark of your Holy Spirit, identified as yours, adopted into a new family, where we will rule and reign with you one day for all eternity, for generations upon generations. God, put our joy there, put our hope there, put our refuge there. And God, as we observe the Lord's Supper this morning, as we consider your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, 
there would be a sweetness to it as we remember what you've done, as it is a symbol of what you've done, that even this does not add any righteousness to us. This does not forgive sin. You alone do that. And as we remember that, may we find great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.